One of my favorite quotes ever. God does not exist. God is the ground of all existence. God does not exist. God is the ground of all existence. I've preached this quote before. What what do I mean when I say that? Or what does Paul Tillich mean when he says this? What Paul Tillich is saying is that God is more infinite and unimaginable than we can even realize. God is without or outside of our realm of understanding. And so what he says, he says, God doesn't exist the way we know existence. God's the ground of all existence. So what do we do with that? Well, if you're like our church, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to figure out God anyway. Okay, And by figuring out God, we're going to go through a series called Identity, and we're going to spend the next few weeks trying to figure out this character of God. And the way that we're going to do it, even though it's going to be tough for us to do, is we're going to go to our inspired scriptures, right? We have our scriptures. They're inspired. They're true. Uh, we have uh, the Israelites who are telling their history, uh, giving, giving us uh, eyes to see their God, the way they view God. And then uh, we get Jesus, right? Jesus gives us a glimpse of who God is. And so we're going to spend some time really focusing on who God is in our our lives and in our church, and I hope that something good comes of this for our church, for us, that we mature, that we grow in all of this. And so the thing I want to talk about today is this. I want to ask this question. I want us to wrestle with this question. Is God just? Is God just? Is God a purveyor of justice? Does God use the law to administer reward and punishment? Is God just? Now, the way I want to go about answering this question is by asking you this. How many people have ever been a part of a deal of any kind? Contract, Facebook, or not Facebook, Craigslist, something? Seriously, just a few of you? I was hoping you'd all raise your hand. Anyway, yeah. Okay, so you have to be a part of a deal. You have to be a part of something, and you've done that before. I went uh, on Craigslist, and I saw a bike I really liked. And when I saw the bike I really liked, uh, I went to the guy's house, and the guy said, you like this bike? I said, yeah. He said, okay, why don't you take it for a spin? I said, all right. So I took it for a spin, um, and then the, the police came. And when the police came, they said, they said uh, um, why do you have this guy's bike? I said, he told me I could take it for a spin. And they go, well, that was two days ago. And I said, what? And they said, if you take it for that long, you got to pay for it. And I was like, what? Really? Now, obviously, none of that happened. (laughs) None of that happened at all. But I'm proving a point. What point am I proving? That is such an absurd story because there are laws in place, right? There's a law in place. There's something that happens. There's a way that we operate with systems and contracts and agreements. And if we don't meet up to those uh, systems, contracts, and agreements, uh, justice is administered, right? That's, we know that. That's who we are. So, uh, you know, we can't walk into somebody's house in Brooklyn, as nice as it would be, and lay down on the floor and be like, this is mine. We can't do it, right? We're not allowed to do that. There's a system in place. We have to go to the bank and sign away our lives before we get a house. Um, we have to do that. You know, we, we, we can't open up a bag of Doritos in a store and walk out and just be like, all right, we'll see you later. You know, you have to pay for that. There's systems, contracts, agreements in place, and there's justice that's administered if that doesn't happen. So what did justice and what did systems and agreements look like for the ancient Israelites, the Israelites that we read about in the Old Testament? Well, there was no 911. There was no, you know, uh, community service or paying fines or whatever it might be. They had a different systems, uh, a system in place that administered justice. There were different contracts in place. And I'm going to tell you what this contract looked like. First off, uh, in the Old Testament, in the, for the ancient Israelites, they didn't call a contract a contract. They called it a covenant. How many people have heard the word covenant before. Good. And so you had a covenant. You wanted to make a covenant with somebody else. Uh, you would say to someone, I want to buy two acres of your land. And they would say, yes, you can do it at this price. You'd start the covenant process. Now, what did the covenant process look like? 
Well, what you did is you got together with your business partner and you got a few animals, doves, goats, rams, you got a cow maybe. And what you did is you cut those animals in half. All right, we follow him. You cut the animal in half so that the entrails are all hanging out and it's all bloody. And you take one half of the animals and you put them on that side. And you take the other half of the animals and you put them on this side. And what you do is you've created a little aisleway, right? And you got bloody, swollen animals with their entrails hanging out on both sides of you. And so you walk with your business partner through the middle of this aisle that you've created, and you say, I will give you uh, two acres, and the other person will say, and I will pay you this much money, and then the deal is done. Now, two big things that come from this. First, have you ever heard the phrase, to cut a deal? Huh? We're done for today. <laughs> You've all learned it. That's where this phrase comes from, to cut a deal. Uh, that happens. So, but here's the bigger thing. The bigger thing is while you're walking down this aisleway, um, what you say next to your business partner is you say, if I am not true to my word, may I become like these animals that are on both sides of us. May I become dead and bloody and bloated and loosed bowels or whatever else is going on. Right? So your word was strong. And if you, your word, if, you're, if you broke your word, then that business partner had every right to make you look like one of those animals. Okay? That was the goal. And so that was how you did a contract in Israel, in, in ancient times in Israel. It was so common, in fact, that when God wants to make a contract, a covenant with Abraham, God says, Abraham, I want to make you the father of many nations. This is what we read. The Lord says to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram bought all those to him, cut, or brought all those to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves, halves opposite each other. In making an agreement with God, we see this happen, right? We see the animals cut, God and Abram walk through, and they make their covenant. This is the agreement. Now, this seems odd, doesn't it? Super odd to us. Yeah, it seems pretty odd to me. Um, but this was normal for them. This was the context and culture in which they lived. And I always say we have to read the Bible with, through the lens of context and culture, all right, so when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy has Moses reminding everybody about this covenant that, they, that Abraham made with God. And Moses says to all the Israelites, you made a covenant with God a long time ago. You signed that contract. And here's the deal. If you end up upholding the covenant, you will be blessed. But if you don't uphold the covenant, here's what's going to happen to you. And I decided just to um, pick part of Deuteronomy 28 because it's the whole chapter of what will happen to you. But what will happen to you, it says, the Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you die. That's the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Um, that's what it says. And so we look at that, and we are like, that is disgusting. That is a mess. In fact, we look at that, and we're like, I don't want to worship that God. But remember, in context and culture, what would happen if they broke the covenant? They'd become like the dead animals, right? And the dead animals look like that. So for them, this is perfectly normal talk. You know what it would be like? It would be like if we, um, you know, somebody did a book of the Bible about us, and we got to read it a thousand years later. And in this book of the Bible about us, it says, you who steals a bike without paying shall incur the justice of God. 911 will be called, and you shall have to pay back the owner of the bike. You shall have to face legal repercussions, which include a fine and community service if it's your first offense. Now, would you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that God. Would you do that? No, you'd be like, this is normal, right? It's normal. 
That's the way it was for the Israelites. When they heard that their God would strike them with boils and infections till they died, they were like, yeah, that makes sense. That's part of our culture. It's what we do. And yet, all of us in this room, some of us in this room, we believe that God is still, that, we still believe that there's that angry God. We still believe there's that angry God who's saying, you know what? If I mess up, I'm gonna be stricken the same way they were stricken. Or if, or if I don't read the right way, eventually God's gonna make me sick. Or, or oh man, I've, I've been sinning this way lately and if I sin this way too much, then there's a good chance that it's gonna come back to get me and God's gonna strike me this way. We still believe in the God of the ancient Israelites, the God who was working within the context and the culture of the people of Israel. We still believe that there's a God who would do that to us. And we believe it to the point where we start to question that God. Why would I wanna worship a violent God who strikes people dead that way? Why would I wanna worship a God who brings boils on people for no good reason? I don't want that God and when we read without context and culture, that's who we think God is. That's what we think God's justice looks like. And if you're like me, you leave the church because of it. I left the church for a little while because I didn't, didn't know how to deal with the violence of God. Is God just? Yes. Is God just the way that we're reading in the Old Testament? No. That was the context and the culture of the time. That was how they made business deals at the time. Now, before you say, man, those Israelites are really dumb. I can't believe they would attribute their context and culture to God. We do the same thing. We absolutely do the same thing. My wife and I lived in Philadelphia for a little bit, and there was this awful, really terrible story. And it was a story about a man who raped an 11-year-old girl, and it was caught on camera. And the whole city was looking for this guy that did it. Uh, because it was caught on camera, his face was all over the news, it was everywhere. And there was one day where uh, this man was walking out of a bodega and he started walking through an alley and people saw him. And when they saw him, uh, a crowd gathered around him and the crowd started to beat him in this alley and they actually beat him until he died. And then our mayor, the mayor at the time, got on TV, did a press conference and he was like, uh, we're not going to charge anybody who was in that crowd because we feel like justice has been served. And that's what happened. Now, for some of us, that doesn't feel right still. Let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say you're walking into a bank and you're going to get money out and some woman runs in and she comes in and she takes her gun and with the butt of the gun, she hits you on the head and you get knocked out. And she says, give me all your money. And she takes your money. She's taking other people's money. She's behind there. She's grabbing teller's money. She shoots one of the tellers and she does all that and she grabs the bags and she runs out and gets hit by a car and dies. What would you say when you got up? You'd be like, she got what she deserved. You might even say, thank God. Because when push comes to shove, we're not that far off from the ancient Israelites. We want justice administered based on what people deserve, what we think they deserve. We, want, we still want an eye for an eye. We want the meritocracy, which is why there's a lot of battle right now in the United States over something like the death penalty, right? Oh, if you killed somebody, you should be killed too. Is God just? Yes, God is just. Is God just the way that we want God to be just right here, right now? No. God is not just that way either. So how is God just? How do we understand the justice of God? Well, we understand the justice of God by taking a look at Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate, and it's through Jesus that we get to see the character of God, and there's this great story. Okay, it's this great story. It's in Mark uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Jesus is walking to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day is part of the covenant. It's part of the contract. What happens if you break that law? What happens? You will become like what? Come on, say it. 
Dead animals. Y'all are afraid to say dead animals. Yeah, you'll become like the dead animals. That's what, that's what they believe, right? This is, this is your word. You're breaking your word. So Jesus is walking uh, on, the, on the Sabbath day, and he sees a man with a shriveled hand, and he sees all the religious leaders. They're like, is he going to break the law? Is he going to do it? And Jesus gets upset, and he's like, <sighs> so he turns around. He's like, what do you think? He's like, is it better to do evil or to do good on the day of the Sabbath? Nobody says anything. And he goes, all right, I'll make it a little easier. Is it better to kill somebody or to save somebody on the day of the Sabbath? And nobody talks. So you're finally like, hey, guy with a shriveled hand, I want you to come up here for a sec. So the guy comes up. His hand is healed. He's made new. He's restored. And you know what the religious leaders do? They go, you broke the law. And because you broke the law, we're going to plot on how we're going to kill you because the law has been broken. Jesus breaks the law in order to bring about restoration. You know how many times Jesus broke the law in order to bring about restoration on the Sabbath day? Seven times. Does it seven times throughout our scriptures? That's a lot of times. That's a lot of people wanting to kill Jesus. How about the story of the woman caught in adultery? We, we've all heard that story, right, about you with who, who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, there's a story where the law says that woman needs to die, and the law is righteous. Jesus breaks the law and goes to that woman, and he restores her and tells her, go and sin no more. I did a quick Google search, just a quick Google search. How many times did Jesus break the law? That's all I typed in. I'm telling you, I got like pages upon pages upon pages, scores of times that we get in four books of Jesus breaking the law. And each and every time, it was eating with somebody, seeing somebody, healing somebody who he wasn't supposed to be with. And every single time, Jesus was bringing about restoration of that person. Are we starting to see what God's justice looks like a little bit? What does God's justice look like? God's justice is restorative justice. God's justice is not I'm going to strike you dead and make you look like the animals on the side. God's justice is not an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the justice you get what you deserve type stuff. God's justice is restorative justice. We see it through Jesus. Every single time he breaks the law to restore. That's restorative justice. That is good news. You know what that means? It means that there are people in this room who are broken. Raise your hand if you happen to be broken. Me too. And God looks at us, and you know what God does? God goes, you know what my justice is? It's not to hurt you because you're broken. It's not to make you feel worse because you're broken. It's not to punish you because you're broken. I want to restore you to your fullness. I want to restore you to the way you've been created, and I want you to play a part in redeeming my kingdom. That is God's justice. God's justice means that when you get sick or when something happens to you, that justice isn't, it's not, oh, God's punishing me for something. No, that's God saying, I want you more than anything else to get better and to be fully restored to the way you were created. That is God's justice. God's justice says that every single time that you think you're on the edge of falling into hell, God says you are not anywhere near it. My justice pulls you back from there. You are being restored. That is the good news. Now, restorative justice gets a little difficult because you know what else God says? God also says, I don't want to see that rapist killed. I wanted to see that rapist restored. And I don't want to see that woman who robbed the bank die. I want to see her restored too. She's a human being like me and I preach on this all the time. As soon as we draw a line in the sand and says that person's getting what they deserve, what do I always say? There's Jesus on the other side going, no, that person's getting restored That is God's justice. 
You know what else restorative justice is? We talk about how our church is a just and generous church. It means that we are working to restore one another. It means that when all these hands of all of us being broken went up, we should be really excited because we can be like, good, we're gonna get a chance to restore each other. That's the justice that God calls us to. And in our city, there are people in our city who are considered less than based on the color of their skin, on their ethnicity, on their religion, on their sexual identity. They're told that they're less than and it is our job to say, no, you are being restored. God is restoring you to the fullest potential, to the place where God invites you to participate in God's kingdom. And we are a part of that. And we have the courage to be a part of that. And we get to dream of a day when God's justice is fully restored. And we all walk around and we say, it is no more. You're less than this. You're illegal that. You like this person. It's like, no, we are all God's children. That is what we work towards as a church. That is God's restorative justice. Is justice God wanting to destroy us? No. Thank God. Is it God wanting to give us what we deserve? No. Thank God. Is restorative justice hard? Oh, yes. How many people have ever restored something? Who's restored something? How many people have cursed while you were restoring that thing? (laughs) And you've cursed. Why? Because it's really, really difficult. Because restoration is not easy. A friend of ours who goes to this church, he restores cars. And you see the car when he buys it, like a nice 72 Cadillac, and it looks just beat up, right? But then like a couple months later, it looks really nice. It's got like, but, but from the beat up to the looks really nice, that doesn't happen like this. There's parts that need to be fixed. There's rust. There's pieces that don't work. There's pieces that have been flooded, that have been hurt. There's mirrors that need to be replaced and all the rest, right? Because restoration takes time. So restorative justice takes time in our own lives, Restorative justice means that there might be consequences to some of our actions. Restorative justice means that if we do steal a bike, yes, we're going to have to deal with the consequences of stealing that bike. God still wants to restore us, but we still might end up in jail otherwise. Restorative justice, I love it. I look at it through the lens of the 12-step program. Uh, When I was in college, I went to 12-step program for a little bit. And it's great because you walk in and the first thing they tell you is God wants to see you uh, full, but you can't do it yourself. That's the first thing they tell you. Restorative justice means we need accountability. And they tell you, you're going to have to take a quick look at your life and you're going to have to say, where am I selfish and where am I selfless? And in those selfish places, you have to cut that out. That's restorative justice. And when you walk in, they say, there's people that you need to to make amends with, people you've hurt. That's restorative justice, having the courage to go and make amends with the people that you hurt. And there are people that that you have to be forgiven by. And restorative justice says, I'm going to go and I'm going to have support, but I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to that person about how they hurt me. That's restorative justice. And it's hard work. And it's painful work, but it makes all the difference in the world because we are being fully restored to who God has intended us to be. It's having the courage to step out these doors and to say to people who have been called less than, you are not less than in the eyes of God. You are fully restored, and I'm going to make sure people hear that. I'm going to do what I can to make that happen. So here's what's going to happen. We're about to celebrate. We're about to celebrate the fullness of restoration in Jesus Christ. Because the, the best restoration is, is the fact that Jesus Christ is on a cross and he dies and is resurrected, where God goes, how do I get these people to know how much they're loved? I don't want to see them chopped into pieces. I don't want to have them get what they deserve. What I want is to see that I've wanted them to be fully restored all along. I know I'm going to send Jesus who's going to die, but then comes back fully restored and changes the course of history because of it. We're going to celebrate that here in a minute. And in fact, I'm going to have our ushers come up. They're going, to, they're going to give communion. And as you come up and you dip the cracker into the juice, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think 
about the parts that need restoration in your life. There's gonna be somebody over on the side of the stage to pray for you. Maybe you, you have them pray through those parts of restoration with you. Maybe there's a people who you have not spoken up for to help. I want you to th- gather up the courage, pray through the courage of, of, of helping that person, those group, that group of people who right now aren't getting the justice they, de- they, they deserve and, and need uh, to be restored. I want you to think about how you have the courage to do that. And maybe for some of us, it's just Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that God does not want us to see is chopped up, loose bowels, bloody all over the place. That's not our God. And our God doesn't want to see us get what we deserve. If that was the case, we'd probably be hurt a long time ago. But God wants us fully restored and fully alive in God's kingdom. That, that's God's justice. That's good news. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being just and giving us the calling to be a just and generous church. We pray that we would continue restoration of one another as we build groups and as we build a community here. We would pray that you would give us the courage to go out into the groups that have been oppressed and hurt for a variety of ridiculous reasons, that you would give us the courage to step up and say, no more, Um, we are all God's children and there's restoration for all of us. Lord, give us the courage to do that and Lord, we give thanks that you did it on the cross, that you restored us on the cross, that there's grace upon grace, upon grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.